The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I'm glad you've joined the conversation today. Our program today is entitled Exhibiting Patriotism, and I think that that is very timely given that uh, we have just celebrated one of our nation's biggest uh, patriotic uh, holidays, the 4th of July, and of course here in Washington we go all out for the 4th, and just walking uh, through the streets of Washington, you cannot help but see a ver- all of the monuments and the museums and while I, I must admit that it sometimes it becomes just sort of a you, you almost don't don't even notice it anymore uh, once in a while I'll be uh, coming up from the metro and I catch a glimpse of the Capitol or the uh, uh, Washington Monument and it still sort of takes my breath away and I realize that even I a jaded museum professional uh, can have those patriotic twin uh, twinges. Well, one of the reasons that we're the other reason we're talking about exhibiting patriotism is my guest today has written a book by that name. It was published in 2013. In case you missed it, uh, published by Left Coast Press. And Teresa Bergman is the author of a fascinating book and a series of case studies of that seeks to understand why we erect these monuments to national events and figures, or why we think we do, and how uh, learning about why certain monuments were erected and the assumptions that were made and the interpretations that were made and how those interpretations have changed over the years uh, really gives us insight into what it means to be an American. Uh, So, Teresa, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, It's wonderful that you're here on the show today. Teresa, why don't you give uh, our listeners a little bit of background uh, about yourself and uh, help us understand your career trajectory? Okay. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for that great introduction. I really appreciate that. I'm an associate professor at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and I'm in uh, the communication department. And this book and this research um, evolved out of my earlier, 
earlier interest in documentary film and how it has been used historically until the contemporary moment to um, depict reality and all the different ways that um, the films themselves are interpretive. And that was a lot of my initial work. As I uh, continued my research, several colleagues had pointed out to me that many museums use films as um, orientation films to tell you about the site. And they were deeply um, moved or bothered by them, <laughs> sort of depending on the site that they went to. And that was something they wondered what I thought about it. So I started researching several sites. In I was at the University of California, Davis, working on my Ph.D., and one of the sites that I looked at was in Sacramento, the California State Railroad Museum. And interestingly, that site in particular had gone through... Um, a big change and a bit of a controversy around their first orientation film. And it, it got people involved, upset, and it led to um, redoing the film completely. And that just completely sparked my interest into how this type of film, documentary film, and then later the exhibits themselves, that are mostly known as objective, that there's, these are styles that will represent exactly how things happened, really don't do that. <laughs> it depends on um, who's making the films, who's putting the exhibits together, what kind of information is being conveyed, and what kind of ideas and ideals. And that just led to, one thing led to another, and it just um, rolled out into what became Exhibiting Patriotism. That's very interesting, uh, and I think it's uh, as I read the book. I thought it was a very it was a great compliment uh, to, uh, to some of the work that that I have done uh, because I have been doing the exhibits that then provide the framework for those introductory films. But my work is usually often done long before the introductory film is is conceived and produced. And I'm always very interested and sometimes surprised to see what that film turns out to be. <laughs> uh, so, so I think, uh, but you're absolutely correct in that uh, certainly I, I know the national parks and probably some of the state parks and agencies, uh, it makes sense that there is a orientation film. Uh, it's almost a formula. Uh, right. You, know, you, you right. go to the site, you go to the introductory film, you get uh, a little more information about the exhibit, uh, about uh, the experience through, the, through some static exhibits, and boom, you go out onto whatever the site or property or monument is. But I think you've shown that there's a lot more to it than that. And what's um, really interesting, and, and you're touching on a point that, completely captured my imagination is that so many um, visitors and us, when we go to historical sites and sites of, um, of public memory, we might not be real familiar with what happened there, but we know it matters, <laughs> and that's why we're going, so that when you see this film, this orientation film, even before, sometimes before you even see exhibits, it's uh, positioning you how to understand the particular site and what happened there and what's being commemorated. And that, um, in my field, 
very rhetorical. An, an argument is being made. We, as visitors, are being positioned how to understand what we're about to see and everything we're about to read and experience. So they can, um, and most people don't go in questioning the film, and they're just sort of, we're all ready to see what, what's there. But um, that was one reason in particular I, um, I've been attracted to looking at the films then moving into looking at the exhibits as well, because um, as you well know, as you were just saying, that the exhibits are interpretive and persuasive just as much as the films are by what exhibits get chosen to be there, which ones become permanent, which ones rotate in and out, um, all of where they are in the museum physically. All of these things um, contribute to meaning as visitors when we go in, whether it matters, how long we linger, how complicated it is, how it's put together. These, um, all of these pieces come together to put the story together that we're getting of the particular site. I, I, I think you're right. It, it, I think we sometimes forget, and certainly we, uh, we often don't communicate this to our audiences, that uh, exhibits are put together, films are put together in similar ways to, way, to how books are put together in that an author, whether the author is an individual or a group of people, uh, make decisions. And every time you make decision, a decision about what to put in and what to leave out, you're interpreting it, and right. you are you're you're slanting it in a certain way. And I I think sometimes uh, places uh, and not to pick on the National Park Service. I mean they they are a phenomenal organization and are doing a great deal to protect uh, sites of memory, as you say, and and monuments as well as nat- uh, natural environments. But they are considered an authority. Oh, absolutely. What I found, the other thing that was so interesting about doing this research and continually surprised me is as I looked at the five different sites, they never turned out to be what I thought would be the story. Everything was counterintuitive. And the, the five, in addition to the, the California State Railroad Museum, I looked at the Alamo, the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, Mount Rushmore and the USS Arizona. Yes. And these were, I, I thought I had an idea of what some of the, the controversies might have been or what some of the, the contests might have been around um, historically, but time after time, it never was what I thought it would be as I uh, did my research. Wow, that's intriguing. Well, before we drill down a little bit into a couple of those examples, uh, could you just give us a little bit more background about how you chose these particular sites? Oh yeah, the um, I I wanted uh, sites of national stature that um, people across the country, no matter where you lived, you would have some familiarity with the particular site. And uh, secondly, I picked sites that there was some controversy over um, an element of their interpretive materials, whether it was their film, their orientation film, or their exhibits. And I wanted to see what the controversy was um, and what the resolution was. To the controversy, what became of that? And these were and, relatively recent controversies, or did you go back in in uh, time a bit to look at some of the the history of controversy? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. Um, what and, and 
as it, everything with this book, every site was so different. I had initially thought they were relatively recent, but what became interesting, like at the Lincoln Memorial, is it had been controversial from the beginning, just even building the memorial. And then the, the ways in which the memorial got used, um, that created controversy as, as sites of protest during the Civil Rights Movement. And then the controversy continued until when they got a film in their basement. So that one really surprised me how far back it was um, a controversial site. Somebody was um, upset about something or other for quite a long time with that one. The other sites um, were relatively recent, sort of the late uh, 20th century into the 21st. Interesting, and uh, I, so I want to go back now. Now my curiosity is peaked, and yes, I did read the book, but I, I know our listeners have uh, probably some of them haven't. So, uh, can you go back and just give us a little bit of a synopsis about? I mean, what could be controversial about the Lincoln Memorial? I mean, heaven's sakes, it's beautiful, and and it's in every single Washington movie and and uh, spy thriller, and we all sit on the steps and watch the fireworks. How could it be controversial? What, what happened in um, the early 1990s was a group, um, a high school group from Arizona of uh, students came out to do a uh, school, school trip, field trip to the Lincoln Memorial. When they got there, they were really surprised that there was no commemoration at the Lincoln Memorial of Martin Luther King because has they had studied history. They had learned so much about what happened with the Civil Rights Movement at the Lincoln Memorial. And it was a, a fairly organized group, and they contacted uh, representatives, congressmen, and um, basically raised enough money to get um, an exhibit added in the basement of the Lincoln Memorial, which had never had anything in it before. It had only been storage. And, in fact, the creator... Um, the architect, um, Henry Bacon, didn't want, he said specifically, he didn't want anything of a museum in there, but they went against his wishes and they built an entire display that most people actually, even to this day, don't even know it's down there. And it's, um, if you're looking for the bathrooms, that's where you'll find it, in the Lincoln Memorial. And you go to the right and you'll see um, the whole basement has been turned into um, exhibits and in the far a corner is an eight-minute um, orientation film. And the orientation film is what caused the uh, controversy at the Lincoln Memorial. They, um, it, it's a really unusual piece, and it runs on a loop, and there's no place to sit. You have to stand to watch it. It's, it's um, a little bit above eye level to look up at it. And it's about 100 different uh, film clips of the ways in which the Lincoln Memorial has been used since its creation. And the narration talks about um, the meaning of the memorial and what caused the controversy in um, much later, in about 2000, early 2000s, was uh, Reverend Lou Sheldon came and saw there, there were two clips in particular that he found very upsetting. Were one, there was an image of a gay rights protest at Lincoln Memorial and a women's rights pro-abortion protest. And he was very upset and um, contacted uh, the Bush administration and demanded the removal of um, these particular um, pieces of film. 
because in his words, they perverted uh, Lincoln's meaning. And there was response, and it became very, very long, uh, protracted struggle on whether or not to change the film to take out these particular sections. While this um, was going back and forth between the National Park Service and the administration on how to change it and what it would become, this um, got leaked to the press and became a national, uh, on the, all the way to the national press. And in the meantime, what, this happened while I was doing my research, a, um, a Freedom of Information Act was filed in, in order to get all the communication that was happening on whether or not this film was being changed, whether the gay rights and the women's rights footage was being taken out. And I got closed out. I wasn't able to, once it was um, in court, my research came to a stop, and I couldn't speak with anyone. Everybody in MPS was told not to talk to anyone, even a university researcher, and even though all the emails I saw were press. Finally, finally, the um, case got settled. It, um, everything got released. They released all the documents. I got to see what um, the documents were. They were heavily redacted, but they had, in fact, bought lots of footage from uh, various news, uh, television news sources, cable news sources, and we're remaking the film. But due to the controversy and um, the, the, the Freedom of Information Act case, what ultimately happened was um, it never changed. And even though footage was bought, moves were made to change it, um, after so much controversy and it never changed, and the same film is still there today. Wow. That's, <laughs> that is so interesting, and it, it touches on so many aspects of, of your work and also issues that, that have been brought up on the show with, uh, by other guests about who, who owns our history and who interprets our history all the way up to Congress. So, But before we get into uh, some of those meteor discussions with Museum Life and more with Teresa Bergman, so stay tuned. Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn 
or call her directly at 240-432-7712. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life, and I am here today with Teresa Bergman, the author of a book published in 2013. Uh, It is available through Left Coast Press called Exhibiting Patriotism, and right before the break, uh, Teresa was telling us about a fascinating controversy that uh, occurred actually while she was doing her research uh, at the uh, Lincoln Memorial about a, a film that uh, talked about how the, the showed all the various ways that the memorial has been used and by whom and come to find out that there was a politician who was very concerned about some of the representations in that film. It caused a huge controversy. Uh, At the end, it sounds as if uh, the film uh, stayed intact. But, Teresa, that just brings up for me just the realization of how politicized these uh, 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 monuments and their interpretation can be. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the most surprising things about the research at the Lincoln Memorial was as I was um, looking at the various controversies, many of them were part of what's been called this uh, paradigm shift in uh, how museum exhibits are put together and becoming much more um, visitor-centric, that the folks who come have much more participation and input into what gets displayed. And that made all kinds of sense, but um, in terms of who gets left out and adding stories that have been historically absent. But what was interesting at the Lincoln Memorial was this time it was um, visitors were coming and wanting to take stuff out that was in there. And it was, it was a switch. And as I continued um, researching the history of the memorial, what became really fascinating from my point of view about the Lincoln Memorial was that 
really the interpretation and visitors taking hold of the interpretation of the Lincoln Memorial happened um, earlier than all the other sites. And it wasn't just this time. It was back in uh, 1939 when Anderson sang America on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial because the daughters, the DAR, Daughters of the American Revolution, would not let her perform at Constitution Hall when they found out that she was African-American. And um, quickly, the organizers got her moved over to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And this begins... Um, a real dramatic change in interpretation of the Lincoln Memorial where it really moves from, it moves directly towards um, civil rights, um, people's rights as an interpretation of Lincoln's legacy. Uh, in addition to saving the Union, with much, much more emphasis on uh, civil rights. And this kind of move from uh, the the people who go from the visitors um, had mostly been tied to a change in museum attendance in like the 1990s, uh, late 80s. But um, this had happened, this switch had happened much earlier at the Lincoln Memorial. And so that when we come to this film that gets made out of this tradition since 39 of um, going to the Lincoln Memorial to protest and to celebrate civil rights, individual rights, we get this film that has all kinds of um, folks um, protesting and celebrating their rights from gay rights to women's rights to pull it out, to have visitors asking to pull it back, was a real interesting test of this change in how we develop our exhibits and museums and what gets in and what gets out, because pretty much um, most sites that I've been looking at have been fairly responsive to when different organizations, different groups, uh, local, regional, or national, organize to demand or request representation or inclusion of a piece of the story that hasn't been there. They've been pretty good about um, doing what's necessary to accommodate those kinds of requests. So this was um, sort of the this was the opposite move, like, no, let's take this out. <laughs> let's change this. And that it didn't get changed, I think, is really a testament to the strength of um, the National Park Service um, I, and a testament to the importance of um, having a system in place that is responsive to visitors but also evaluates the kinds of requests that are made for um, changing interpretations um, at these uh, these sites that really do um, constitute uh, public memory and what we value and how we define patriotism and our history and, and uh, what it means to be an American. That's, that is very interesting, and, and I think you make a very good point that this example shows that it's a... It's a balancing act that the institution, the interpretive institution, in this case it was the National Park Service, uh, also feels their responsibility very strongly to provide uh, and maintain the breadth of diversity even in the face of individuals who want to uh, shrink uh, that diversity. And I guess in, in that vein, it reminds me of uh, the, the uh, research you did for the California Railroad Museum. Uh, I, I've 
perhaps you could just share a little bit about that story as well, where initially there there were not uh, the Chinese uh, workers were not uh, included in uh, any of the interpretation in the museum. That seems a, 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 an obvious and, and gross oversight. How did that happen in the first place? Right, right, and that that was exactly how it was um, described to me. And um, so I began my research, and the museum opened in 1980, and it was pretty surprising that um, there was given that there was no representation of the Chinese contribution to the um, the California section of the railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad. And as I began my research, so here was the tremendous surprise that was so counterintuitive. Um, since this is relatively recent, the um, the curator who had developed this, um, it did, well, the Chinese eventually did get added, but the woman who worked on this was um, recently retired, and I was able to speak with her in, in addition to look at their, looking at their archival materials, and that in the uh, middle 70s, when they were designing the exhibits that would be in the uh, museum, there was supposed to be a Chinese worker exhibit, and that's what it was called. And they had contacted several um, Chinese societies that are in uh, Sacramento, and they tend to be family-based, how they they were organized, to um, get their input on how to develop this exhibit. It seemed like the right thing to do. And the response was they did not want to be represented in the museum as um, what was then coolie labor. Mm-hmm. And um, that was most of the people who were involved in the societies, the Chinese societies, um, didn't have a lot of pride of that particular part of their history at that time. And um, the curator that I spoke with basically backed off and they did not develop an exhibit. And it became just sort of the standard mural of the Sierra, just a painting of um, what the railroad had to go through in terms of having to go through the mountains. It wasn't until two years later when um, one person in particular, Philip Choi, uh, um, from San Francisco State, was going through the museum and saw this one exhibit. It's called the People Garden. And it had all these really nice mannequins of all the different kinds of folks who were involved with um, the railroad. And he pretty much said, where are the Chinese? How did we get left out? And it was a remarkable time in California history when we actually had money in our state budget. He contacted the, um, his uh, assembly person, uh, Art Agnos, and they were able to allocate $100,000 to the Railroad Museum. This is a state museum. This is not from the National Park Service. This is run by a state, run by the state. And they created um, two exhibits that um, were all about the Chinese contribution to building the railroad. And everyone that I spoke with, um, who's, who's currently of uh, Chinese descent, um, involved with the Railroad Museum, really likes the exhibit, thinks they did a great job, and that um, it was remedied, the absence was remedied really well. That, you know, one thing strikes me in, in that story is you said, you, you suggested uh, that the previous curator had, had said that the Chinese community didn't feel that, that you know, that, that uh, 
they weren't proud, I guess. They, they had no pride in that contribution of, of their work. And I, and I can imagine why pride might not be the first uh, uh, superlative that comes to your mind, first feeling when you think about uh, these individuals coming over and, and almost being, ex- well, I'm sure they were to some extent, were exploited. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and were certainly, I mean, their living and working conditions must have been relatively deplorable, even by the standards of the time. Uh, so... I just find that fascinating that it that a group rather not have something discussed than bring up a painful part of our collective history. Is that does is that a fair statement? Oh, oh, exactly. And and the and you're exactly right about how Chinese um, railroad workers were used. They were used to break the union essentially and pay them much less than the to a large degree the Irish and the other. Um, white workers at the time because Chinese weren't allowed into the union. So um, they were uh, hired instead, essentially, and, and to um, make it cheaper to build the railroad and um, used, yes, in deplorable conditions. It was really, really a tough part of the railroad to build right through the, that particular that part of uh, California. The next thing that you're that you were also talking about, which I I found really fascinating, is that it was it was generational too. After I was able to do research and interview quite a few um, Chinese Americans who were involved with the railroad museum, is that um, pretty soon thereafter, the next generation much more uh, embraced their history, no matter what. This. Um, uh, Whatever lack of pride in being coolie labor and, and all of the, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, all of the really, I mean, we had a virulent, uh, racist past in California, deeply, deeply anti-Chinese. Um, so to get to a point to like, yes, this is our history and we're, we embrace it and we want everyone to know about it happened, um, in, into the, um, late 80s and, with the founding of, uh, Philip Choi was part of founding the Asian Studies Department at San Francisco State, so that embracing this history and knowing this history um, became important. So that was a really interesting switch that um, the planning of the museum started sort of in one generation, and when it finally opened, it was a new, gen- it was a new time to, of, um, in the culture, and in Chinese-American culture in particular, so that... Um, the next iteration of this particular issue happened in the 90s when um, the uh, orientation film finally got replaced because there was no mention of um, Chinese contribution in the first film, and it gets um, remade in the um, 90s where um, just about every, the Chinese and every single um, national ethnicity gets added to the uh, film in terms of their contribution to, work, to building the railroad. That's in, that's interesting, um, and it just brings up another question. And, and maybe this is unfair. I have not seen that particular film, but it seems to me that that there's a danger of swaying too much in another direction, and that is to say, well, not only were the Chinese involved in this, but so and so and so and so, and so it becomes so inclusive 
to be, you know, in fear of uh, alienating anyone that, that it sort of loses the focus of the film. Is that yeah, I, I agree. I think we, you tend to get a laundry list as opposed to really understanding the particular issues that um, each ethnic group faced because they, really, they were quite particular. I mean, the, um, the exclusionary laws against the Chinese were directed at the Chinese and alone. That was, they have a very unique history in California and in their relationship in the, with the railroad when we move when you have a laundry list, you tend to flatten out all the different kinds of histories that people experienced. And the railroad is such a, a lightning ride for um, social change, and in addition to technological uh, advancement, because we get um, the Pullman Porter Union, uh, Pullman Porters, and the Union of African American Men, who were porters that worked on the railroad. In, for Pullman, George Pullman, but um, for all kinds of reasons, they uh, were not paid a wage. They were only paid in tips, and that so their whole history with the railroad is very different than the Chinese um, relationship to the to the uh, railroad and its development. But the railroad still played a, a key role in um, assimilation and. Um, uh, immigration to um, across the country. Uh, yes, and that I'm glad you mentioned the Pullman Porters because uh, in reading that section of of just your book, again I haven't seen the exhibit. I learned something, uh, and it reminded I didn't know that they weren't paid a wage. That here they were uh, working for tips, and they must have been trying to support families, and it must have been nerve-wracking at times and also you know anyone who's ever been a waiter or waitress know and working for minimum wage and uh, for tips knows that the customer is always right even when they're wrong uh i would think that that could could have become demeaning as well and it just reminded me that an exhibit that i had seen years and years ago i can't even remember where uh, talked about the pullman porters and as just this happy, dedicated group of people who love the railroads and their parents, you know, love the railroads and their children love the railroads. And, and uh, that had always been my assumption. And it, and it just shows uh, you know, that we all can do better in questioning our, the, the history. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a jo- it was a job. It was a good job, and especially when there were so few after Reconstruction for African American men, it was um, it was important. It's a real important part of our history, and um, the Railroad Museum has great opportunities to include these um, real crucial parts of our 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 national history. Yes, the good parts and the bad. Well, we are going to take another of our second break, and when we come back, more with Teresa Bergman. I just want to remind you that the book is available through Left Coast Press. Uh, you can go online uh, and uh, order the order this very fascinating book. And I also want to thank all of my listeners who take the time to uh, call, send me a tweet, uh, send me an email about how you think 
the show is doing and especially love it when you recommend guests. Uh, the show is all about museums and it is for our profession so that we can all learn from each other. So please continue to uh, send, uh, send me messages through carol.bossard at verizon.net. My, uh, my Twitter name is MuseWrite and uh, always love to hear from you. Uh, we will be back in a moment more with Teresa Bergman. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. You're listening to Museum Life. I am Carol Bossert, and I am here with Teresa Bergman, author of the book Exhibiting Patriotism. And right before break, we were talking about uh, the California Railroad Museum and how they were working to become more inclusive and uh, re- remediate, I suppose is a good word, uh, some of the groups, particularly the Chinese, uh, who were left out of that story originally. Uh, And so, Teresa, I know that that you did several other, you mentioned that there were several other uh, case studies that you did, and I want to get into some of those. But before I do, I just can't help but ask, um, in your studies, did you identify any commonalities among these projects or or uh, lessons for the field that uh, that we could, that you could share? Oh, that, that's a great question. And as I went through, I really thought that there would be 
quite a few more <laughs> than I found. And by um, what became really clear to me is the one thing that was in common with every single site is that there was very little in common, and that what had happened at each site was completely dependent on the site's history and what was going on in that community in particular that led to the controversy and whatever the resolution might be. So that when I I think what what I had thought would be that particular stories had been left out, like at the the USS Arizona in um, Hawaii, Mm-hmm. One of the one of the criticisms that I had heard from other um, visitors who had been there was the representation of uh, Japanese and uh, Japanese of um, Americans of uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry and their representation. But once um, I started looking into it, it it was such the story and it was such so much more complicated about how the depictions came to be and who was involved in putting these stories, the, the, um, the films together and putting the exhibits together so that when any of your visitors are going to the USS Arizona now, it's been completely redone and it's um, an ama- they've done an amazing job. And it's all because of the kinds of questions that their local community raised about how Japanese Americans were being represented in their orientation film. And one of, and that was just unique to them. And it was so interesting. I just have to tell you this short little story that um, the first film that was there was used pieces of a film from a um, Hollywood film called December 7th. And, it had recreation in it of um, what happened at Pearl Harbor in addition to actual footage and the kinds of, uh, those kinds of images. We're not used to seeing so much historic recreation these days in documentaries, but it was those recreated images that made um, the local um, Hawaiians of Japanese ancestry really upset because they were implying that Japanese in Hawaii had been spies where all of the documentation, all the research, everything has showed that that didn't happen at all. And they raised, they organized, they got all, they were really organized in terms of uh, getting groups to um, weigh in to change this uh, message that was being communicated. And there was initial resistance. And I think that um, that is one thing that is similar between all the sites, that whatever people are asking for, the initial response is resistance. And it could be all kinds of reasons. It could be budgetary. It could be um, ideological. But it's never like, oh, yeah, we can change that. No problem. That is never the initial bureaucratic response, no matter what the question is. So I, I would guess so that's something that's similar between all of them. What they did in Hawaii was organized with the veterans, with uh, the local Japanese Americans, with their representatives, and, and eventually were able to change enough of the orientation film so that that implication is um, changed in terms of this is what a U.S. Uh, military thought that uh, Hawaiians of Japanese descent, that they were spies, and as opposed to just implying that they were spies. So it becomes a very different message. And 
because of the kind of organization that took place to change this um, representation in the film when um, the reorganization of the entire visitor center happened in uh, early 2000s, there are now 12 different exhibits that talk about um, all of uh, Asian Americans' contributions to World War II in, throughout all the, uh, the interpret, all the interpretive exhibits now, where there were none before at all. So it's completely changed, and it makes a much uh, complete um, intricate story of a very complicated time in U.S. history. Yes. No, I, 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 I agree with you. I think, and I uh, personally, uh, having worked with the national parks for oh, over 20 years, I've seen a real shift in their philosophy of interpreting some of these sites from being interpreting narrowly the site or the monument or mm. the boat or the, the event to becoming, uh, trying to provide as much as possible a better context uh, with which to see these these events and understanding that uh, there are particularly in, in more current events there are fewer and fewer people who were there or bring right. their own context exactly. uh, so and, it, and that's exact and that's a real similar issue that happened at the Alamo this wasn't a national park site but the daughters of the Republic of Texas had run the site since um, 19 oh, when did they get that in 19, right at the turn of the century one or two and um, there was a big emphasis. Their, almost their entire tenure of interpreting the Alamo was only interpreting it in terms of the 10-day battle at the Battle of the Alamo. No matter how much request came and people asking for um, putting this in a larger history, the history of Mexico in terms of their fight for um, uh, independence from Spain, tying this into any larger historical trends, who were the people, the kind of immigration that was going on from the U.S. into Mexico at the time, and which were the people who were at the Alamo. There was big resistance to interpreting it as anything other than this 10-day battle. And finally... Um, in the early 2000s, there there's, becomes a move to start to locate the Alamo within this larger history. But um, what uh, happened in 2011, it was a little too, a little too, little too late, and the Texas um, removed the um, the daughters of the Republic of Texas from being the sole curators of the Alamo and put it under their land commission. And and it has a lot to do with what you exactly were saying. I mean, there's people want to know the larger histories. Um, in San Antonio, over 60% of the San Antonio population is um, Hispanic, and there was very little representation of Tejano or Mexican uh, participation in the Alamo, even though there was quite a bit. So these kinds of changes and bringing in these uh, broader histories, uh, there's a lot of resistance um, for all kinds of reasons. Yes, and uh, oh, I think the Alamo is a fascinating story. I, I lived in Texas for about 10 years and, and uh, frankly never quite understood why the Alamo was so important and, and, <laughs> and frankly wondered if it would have been as important as we all make it if they hadn't preserved the site as a, as, as a piece of national identity. And so I've, I've often wondered if that was an, an example of, 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 a, of a monument leading memory. <laughs> 
Well, I, I think we do. I absolutely give credit to the the daughters of the Republic of Texas for um, achieving that kind of uh, interpretation of the Alamo. It, it's truly amazing that we all know about it and what they the story that has been promoted for so long has become, um, it's an international symbol of uh, liberation and fighting oppression. And they can take credit for that. There's no question that they have promoted that um, continually and successfully. And so many people relate to that and find and embrace it and find it as uh, one of the few sites in the U.S. that uh, really capture our exceptionalism, our commitment to democracy, um, no matter what the history is, <laughs> that's, that is, um, the, in fact, they've been quite successful in promoting that particular narrative. Yes, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you, even though I, I find concern with that, that narrative going, you know, going too much farther. Um, but I want to actually talk the Alamo and then actually the Lincoln Memorial reminds, reminded me of another question I wanted to ask and in these last uh, few minutes we have. And going back to what you said before is that you came to this project because of your interest in film. And uh, it just reminds me that there is there's there seems to be such a fine line between entertainment films that use that that uh, use a historical event. I'm thinking of the recent uh, movie on Lincoln. Um, perhaps not such a good example, but but a recent example was a uh, a, a Hollywood movie on the Alamo. Uh, and both of those uh, had a lot of historic detractors. You know, saying that they mm-hmm. didn't get this right and they didn't get that right, and mm-hmm. and um, they were given sort of a buy because, well, after all, it's entertainment. But then you have these um, monument films that end up, as you said, in in the Arizona, they they use uh, um, Hollywood or, or, uh, uh, um, you know, movie-making footage. So, you know, sort of like, did you find that sometimes the lines blur between these two two, uh, types of film? Oh, absolutely. And and one thing that you're speaking to and and why I think... The films, by and large, cause controversy, um, is that when you put a film together as opposed to an exhibit, you get causality. You get an explanation of why things happened. In in a static exhibit, we'll have artifacts, we'll have um, some interpretive uh, paragraphs there, and there there will be causality, but when it's brought to um, uh, a film, a filmic representation, it's much more blatant what the um, point of view is, what what led to what in terms of uh, causality. Why why was there a fight there? Why was there a battle? Why did we um, bomb? Why was Pearl Harbor bombed? It, we get to that much faster than we do in an exhibit, and that's where I think the blurring and use it, the use of film is, uh, brings us really quickly into uh, persuasion and um, an argument about what matters and how to understand the site that you're at. And that's what I think um, people, people like. We like it. I like, I personally love having stuff explained to me. Um, 
But we need, and I need to be always critical about this explanation that I'm getting, and, and especially at um, such important sites. That's a very good point. I, I am so glad you articulated the concern uh, so clearly that that narrative is wonderful, and we all, you know, as museum interpreters, we always say, "Well, we learn. We're a storytelling uh, species. We learn through storytelling." And the truth is, we do. But if there isn't a conversation that follows, that story can take on a life of its own that that isn't always uh, helpful for for our understanding ourselves and our historic past. Oh, exactly. I mean, and one of the questions that I often get is, well, what, what can you possibly expect from these films? They can't say everything. Well, and, and I, we know that, and, and that's very clear. But they have hopefully will inspire more research, more reading, asking more questions, in term, and not shutting things down as if this is the only story. Like, okay, here's the, the outline. Here's some of the things. Here's some other, where other research is going on, the key points of things that happened. And the, and the other really important message that, that I hope anyone who reads my book or anybody who goes to these sites realizes is that all of this interpretive material changes all the time. And it changes because we ask for it. And it changes because of new historic research and new documents that have been uncovered and new interpretations and that they are not the least ecstatic. And I love that about our sites, <laughs> that, um, that they really are responsive to changing scholarship, to um, changing communities, and that um, we really do have a role in um, continuing the conversation because so much of this interpretation is based on... Um, what matters to us now. That And that is a wonderful way of leaving our show today. Uh, I, I hope all of you uh, go out and buy Teresa's book. I have found it fascinating and uh, humbling and also helpful for my, my own professional uh, skills and capacity building. We will be back next week with another episode of Museum Life. Until then, this is Carol Bossert. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.